puts the bullet on the table and the 10 grand. He says, pick one. I said, really, we're going to go there. And I'm saying inside my head, this guy didn't get the memo that he's really in dangerous territories. If he thinks he's going to shake down the most powerful people in the world that are behind my attorney partner. We all have crazy restaurant stories from our careers in hospitality, either working for someone else or with our own businesses. And today's guest is no exception. He's an illustrious New York City restaurateur operating in arguably one of the most competitive restaurant towns on the planet. He actually has a 25,000 plus square foot restaurant, which he'll tell us all about. But mostly his message is about playing by his own rules, creating his own luck and destiny and not being intimidated by the obstacles that get in our way. So you're not going to want to miss this. Crazy stories, best practices, it's all here. Don't miss it. One caveat to this episode, folks. It's uncensored and contains adult language. It's not the episode to listen to with the kiddos in the car. And make sure you stay until the very end. You're not going to want to miss all the crazy stories that Stratus has to share. You're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars Podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Listen, I am a huge believer that service is your restaurant's greatest competitive advantage. But we all know that service takes time and commitment dedication. Well, what if there was a training tool, a single tool that was completely customized to your restaurant brand, your menu? Let's start with photos of the plate presentations, ingredients, romance notes, allergens, everything that's important that your staff need to know to present and bring to life your menus for your guests. That includes your wine and beer list, specialty cocktails, everything at their fingertips. Imagine in the back of house that cooks, your new prep cooks, or anyone can instantly look at the photos, a list of ingredients with prep times and cooking steps, all the important things to produce each dish to perfection. Imagine there's also table layouts of every dining space in your restaurant with table numbers and even seat numbers because we all know how important it is to deliver the right dish to the right guest. This is a tool designed to enhance hospitality in your restaurant, not replace it. Learn more at servenow.com. That's S-R-V-N-O-W.com. Check it out. Not answering your phone is one of the quickest ways for your restaurant to lose a potential customer. But between serving in-person customers and dealing with the kitchen, it's hard for staff to prioritize incoming calls. That's why your restaurant needs pop menu answering. Simple questions that keep your phone line tied up can be handled without pulling a staff person from your in-person hospitality. Reclaim the power of your phone. Pop menu answering is powered by artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions most people call in with, like, do you have outdoor seating or what are your hours? Within the pop menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guests hear, plus create customized greetings. Pop menu answering picks up your phone 24-7, 365 days a year, turning every phone call into an opportunity. Plus, Pop menu's full collection of tools helps optimize your restaurant's website and menu, streamlines your ordering experience, and assists in retargeting to enable you to build long-lasting relationships with your guests. Get help answering your restaurant's calls now with Pop menu answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month plus an unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash rockstars. Go now to get $100 off your first month at 
popmenu.com slash rockstars. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast with me today, Mr. Stratus Morfogan, and he is a restaurateur, an investor, an entrepreneur, an author, really interesting guy. Welcome to the show, Stratus. How are you today? Oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely great having you. You're coming at us from the eastern end of Long Island, a place I know well. Tell us about where hospitality and the passion for restaurants really began with you. Well, I'm a third generation restaurateur. Uh, my grandfather immigrated here in 1895. My real last name was Morphogenis, but he had to cut the IS off because when he signed his first restaurant lease in 1905, uh, Morphogenis wouldn't cut it. So he wanted to sound a little bit more white Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, German, and he went with the name Morphogen by cutting off the IS. And there he opened up Pappas, and Pappas became a big hit from 1910 to uh, 1975. Uh, 10 years after his death, the restaurant still continued. And, um, you know, so I, I grew up in that business. And then from my father started in 1956, he had up to 14 restaurants. And um, basically yep. those restaurants were from uh, steakhouses, seafood houses, Greek diners, catering halls. I really had a touch of everything and I worked in all of them. So I, I knew at four to six years old that this is what I wanted to do. That's a really early beginning. So obviously it got under your skin and the passion and the pride runs deep and you've got a number of experiences. Um, let's talk about the Fulton fish market because you did something really interesting there when the internet was in its infancy and ta-da, tell us that story. Well, you know, it's funny in regards to my book, it starts off with I'm six years old and I'm at the Fulton fish market and I describe it as Disney world for me. That was wow. my Disney world. And literally my mother, when I was around seven, said, I'm taking your brother and sister to Disney World for the, for the week. And I said, no, dad's got the truck this week and I want to go to Fulton Fish Market with him. So I rejected Disney World to actually go to the Fulton Fish Market. Uh, I think I was seven years old and my father realized at that point, you know, restaurant is really going through my blood. So I, I started very young at the Fulton Fish Market. And, and that's what leads to your question is that I... I the networking that the Morfogans, the Morfogans were the biggest buyers in the F Fulton fish market for oh. about 30, 40 years. No My uncle George was the buyer for the oyster bar in Grand Central. My father had a, nine restaurants at any given time. And my uncle Gus had the Moby Dick, which was a big seafood restaurant on Madison and 84th. And when they all came together at the Fulton Fish Market, they became like, you know, a, a Greek unit where every one of the purveyors really like rolled out the red carpets when the Morfogan brothers uh, and cousins uh, walk through the market. And that gained a lot of respect for the true owners of the market. And that was the Genovese family. They ran the Fulton Fish Market. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as the FBI might say that this this one and this one were criminals, I looked at them as extended family. You know, when I, I would say Ali, Ali Shades, Mangano, when I would see all these guys, they weren't to me anything more than extended family. So growing up in that age, um, you know, I learned about the Fulton fish market. I learned, you know, when, you know, in my book, I talk about where, when the police used to come into my school in second grade and tell me about policing and what it is to be a responsible citizen. Well, they left something out. They left it out when, you know, you pull up to the Fulton fish market and you don't give the gangster $40 to park your car. He sticks an ice pick, uh, in your tire and literally a block away are police sitting around a hot, hot, uh, garbage can of fire, keeping their hands warm. And they're actually witnessing this. So I, I used to look at the policemen coming into my school and telling us these stories. And I would look at them like, this is bullshit. 
Now, this is not this is not true. You know, this is not what goes on in the real world. And from six to ten years old, I learned about the real world really, really quickly. Some and, people would um, call that street smarts and what an indoctrination yeah. into how life really works. But especially in a place like, you know, those tight knit communities of lower Manhattan. And I'm, I'm hearing that the Disney World comparison for you was the sights, the sounds, the smells, energy. the people, the whole vibe of that place and, and en- what that meant to the greater world. Yeah, I was addicted to the energy. Yeah, I was addicted. It was such a fast pace, you know. Oh, this, this. Let me see. My my father was the best. My father knew that the fish on top of the box was the good one, and the fish under the box was crap. So they knew he would take the he would take a whole sixty pound box with his hook and throw it on the sh- on the scale before he bought that box of fish, and then he started throwing all the all the bad ones out. And then lo and behold, all the buyers knew that they couldn't screw over John, Peter, George, and George number two, Morfogan. Um, because these guys knew their business. And I learned all this because I'm, I'm, I'm just taking this in. I'm watching my father fight over an 800-pound box of halibut. Herb Slavin, who's a legend down there, was saying, 85 cents, you dumb Greek, 85 cents. And my father's like, I can curse on this, right? Yeah, of course you can. Yeah, because I want to do it verbatim. Fuck you. Fuck you, you Jew. Is, is, and I couldn't believe this language. I'm like, my God, this is what my dad is saying? This is what Herb Slavin's saying, you damn Greek. And, and they're fighting over a nickel. So I pop out a nickel out of my pocket and I give it to him. I said, dad, take the nickel. You know, take it if you need it that bad. He pulls me over to the side, throws me on top of a box of halibut, you know, with my pants all wet. And he goes, we're talking about 800 nickels. Yep. And these were lessons. This was my mm. math class. Yes. This was my math class in the market. And then at the end of the day, Herb Slavin and John Morfogan were out having drinks the night, night after, you know, as friends. But down in the market, it was all gloves off. Their, you know, their, 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 their polite and mannerisms were awful. They would say such harsh words to each other. You thought they hated each other, but then the next day they're having dinner and drinks and laughing. And, and that's how I was brought up in the market. And then parallel to that, my dad had a restaurant in Howard Beach where the best customer was Carlo Gambino. So at six, seven years old, I'd be working as a busboy. And he'd walk in there to his same table every three, four nights a week. And he would have this five or six guys around him. And, you know, I always saw how my father and all the managers treated him. Oh, Mr. Gambino's here, Mr. Gambino, get him his drink, get him his table. And I'm like, wow, yep. VIP guy, service. This guy is important, you know? Yeah, so I right. walked to the table one day and I wanted to be involved in that. I wanted to be a part of this. So I'm pouring him water and I said, hi, Mr. Gambino. And the whole table just shuts up. Because here's a guy that's gone so far out of the way to be indiscreet. To, 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 to have discretion where, where, where oh, no one knows who he is. Yes. And all of a sudden, this six-year-old chubby busboy knows his last name. The table went silent. And I said, oh, sh- what did I do wrong? I remember. I still mm. remember that time. Yeah. He goes, come here, come here, kid. I sit next to him. He goes, how's school? I said, school's good. And he goes, and he tips me a $20 bill, which is like $200 today. It was yeah, like 1973. Right, right, right. 73. Yep. And he goes, high is good enough. And then he goes, go on your way. And I was like, and then, and then as I'm leaving, all the guys started laughing. You know, I'm like, what did I do? I just said, yeah, I thought I was being gracious. And my father explained to me that we call him sir. And we say hi, because we never mention his name. He likes to just be called sir. That's as much information I needed at six, seven years old. Valuable but lesson. Was, yeah. And discretion always played well with me because, you know, fast forward to 2009, when I've owned Philippe Chow, John Paulson's about to do a hostile takeover of Bank of America. And they're in my private dining room. 
And I'm there and I'm actually seeing the PowerPoint of what they're going to do the next morning on doing a hostile takeover for billions and billions of dollars. You know, who sees that? You know, if, if I was corrupt, I'd be freaking, uh, you know, I would be buying up the, the, the stocks on that, you know, but that's what we see in the restaurants. And we have to, I, I learned at a very young age about discretion and discretion is key to running a successful business in the, especially a restaurant business. But now getting back to your question, Fulton Fish Market became extended home to me. I knew everybody there. And in 1997, when I was introduced to the internet, I knew that was the future. I actually jumped up and down and I begged all other restaurateurs at the time, take this thing serious. You guys have five, 10, 15 restaurants and all you have is a business card and a store locator on, on your website. This is not what this is about. This is about interaction. This is about engaging with your guests. It's about content, content, photographs, information. And then eventually they'll be able to buy online, let them you know, buy a t-shirt, buy a hat, whatever. Eventually you'll be able to order your food online. That's gonna come in the years to come. They all called me crazy. And I said, well, that's what's going to happen. So, you know, I stuck my money where my mouth is and I opened Fulton Market, FultonStreet.com. And, um, and that was 1997. And I worked it off an AOL server. I had about three employees. And then we were buying the fish in the market. We were bringing it to a, a packaging facility. We would pack it up, dry ice, pretty much like an Omaha Steaks for fish. And, uh, Visionary, and, you know, uh, some people would say you could see around corners because you could see trends before they began. You didn't see it as a trend. You saw it as the future of the world way back then, right? Way 1997, then. it's like, okay, web. the web is now a thing and people are starting websites and, and very few people really understood how it would work and what the long-term value of it would be. But you, yeah. it sounds like you instantly recognized that value and you, you saw an opportunity to move that, that whole enterprise forward in a different way. You know, you know and, and it saddens me to say that one of my friends owned about 125 huh. sporting goods stores, right? Yep. And I yep. told him in 97, I said, listen, I'm not going to mention his name, but I said okay. to him, um, hey, you got to take this web thing serious. You're way ahead of Amazon. This thing called Amazon is going to come and they're going to start doing sporting goods. Uh, they just made an announcement. They're going into other things but books. You need to jump ahead of this thing. You got 125 stores. You can use these stores um, for returns, for same-day delivery. Imagine same-day delivery. Crazy. And, and, yep. and, and, and he's like, if, this was the answer I got. He said, if you think people are going to buy uh, jerseys and hats and, 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 a, and a baseball glove through this computer, you've lost your mind. I no said, way. I'm going to tell, you, well, I'm gonna tell yeah. you one more thing. <laughs> They're going to be able to buy cars without seeing them. And they're going to buy, buy houses without seeing them from this computer that you're talking about. So with that said, they're going to buy jerseys because if they can't touch the jersey, they're not going to buy it. I said, BS, they're going to buy the jersey because they don't want to get out of there. They, they want it on their terms. They don't want to be going to your store to shop. They want to shop on this thing called the computer called the internet. And they're going to want you to ship it to them. You can do same day delivery. You've got the stores. He laughed me out the table, laughed me. He said, I, all I needed is this for a location finder for my oh, 125 man. stores. And you know what I said to him? Yeah. This is 1997. I said, in 25 years with this attitude, you're going to be bankrupt. He's like, we have a, we have a $1.7 billion valuation. They want us to go public. You've lost your mind. Uh, this computer compared to my 125 stores. Yes. And guess what? He went bankrupt in 2020. And the lesson there is innovate or die, stay relevant or you're toast. Which leads me to my next question. So you you are a well-known, um, accomplished 
lifetime restaurateur. You learned the business from the ground up, working, I'm hearing, pretty much every position. You met influential people from an early age. And now I can't think of a more competitive, maybe San Francisco would be a close second, but what is a more competitive restaurant town than Manhattan? And think about how restaurants come and go practically every minute. How do you stay relevant and stay ahead of the curve and keep innovating and develop a celebrity clientele that one minute you're hot and the next minute some other place is hot? How do you maintain that relevance? I I mean, uh, everything you've just said uh, basically describes my life Uh, from the pitfalls and the successes and the failures. Uh You know, it's all been part of my journey. And that's what I put in my book, Be a Disruptor, because everything I've ever done, I've disrupted it. I did a Greek diner. My father had a Greek diner. I did my version of a diner called Gotham Diner. It was a three-star New York Times chef, and it was called Gotham Diner. And it was I was inspired by the Fog City Diner, funny that you say San Francisco. Yes, I'm familiar But I wanted that. to do my diner with a three-star New York Times chef, but still have eggs and burgers. And that was in 1993. Um, when I when Later on, when I created... Um, um, Philippe Chow, I basically took the chef out of Mr. Chow and I wanted to create my version of fancy Chinese food, but I wanted to be relevant with the entertainment industry. So I was playing from Neil Young to Grateful Dead to Led Zeppelin to uh, the Bee Gees uh, in a dining room, which was never heard of before in a fine dining atmosphere where people are paying about $100 a person in 2005. Mm -hmm. And you're hearing Led Zeppelin and Grateful Dead and Pink Floyd. But that was my vision of how I wanted to create my Chinese restaurant. And that became a gangbuster success. It was the highest grossing restaurant in America for seven years straight. And um, I sold that in 2014. And basically I took three years off, um, spent more time with my kids. And I came up with this concept of, you know, my wife and I would go to a steakhouse and she didn't eat beef, but you know, she would sit there with a lobster and a towel or a piece of fish and parsley and cream Mm -hmm. of spinach and a baked potato. And there I am sitting with a big porterhouse and I'm saying, wow, something's wrong with this. And here I am. I've had Chinese restaurants at that point for about uh, about nine years. And I said, you know what? I said, wouldn't it be cool if all every the porterhouse remained the same, dry aged 35 days, but we married it with salt and pepper lobster and Peking duck and Beijing chicken and funky dumplings. Let's go instead of just a regular pork shrimp or crab dumpling, let's do pastrami. Let's do Reuben. Let's do bacon cheeseburger. Let's do peanut butter and jelly. Instead of a soup, let's do French onion soup zao bang. Let's do French onion soup dumplings. Let's do lobster bisque dumplings. And then the whole thing basically went bananas where I married Beijing Chinese with an authentic American steakhouse staying true to each culture. And again, before we launched Brooklyn Chop House, I noticed at that point, either we're going to screw this up by confusing everybody, or this will be innovation and disruption at its highest point because remember the chop house came with the irish immigrants in the 1850s in new york and they all settled in brooklyn and basically after that the menu never really changed that much it it, it actually morphed into um steakhouse but chop house and steakhouse to this day you still have the same side dishes cream of spinach baked potato and and unfortunately one of the top steakhouse got a scathing review because it said hey the steak is great but everything else seems like an orphan. Everything else seems like an afterthought. Mm. And what I wanted to do is make the co-stars just as good as the star. And the star being the dry age meats that I get from Pat Lafrida, 35 days, I age everything. I wanted the co-stars to be just as important and yes. relevant. 
as so what I created was LSD. So, you know, people said, LSD, I, what, what are you? I, I said, yeah, we're going to do a culinary trip and we're going to make everything about Brooklyn Chop House. The, 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 the sub tag is going to be LSD. Like, what is LSD? I said, lobster, steak, and duck. And that's it. And then we could do lobster, steak, and dumplings. At the end of the day, yeah. it's yeah, lobster, cool. steak, and duck, and it's dim sum and chops. It's Roger, it's been hashtagged so many times on Instagram, hashtag LSD. I got a letter from the feds asking, telling me that I'm under investigation for the promotion of narcotics. Instagram was forced to remove hashtag LSD. It's if an acronym go on, for God's sake. If you go on, on if you go on Instagram today, hashtag yeah. LSD does not work. It was hashtagged over about 3,800 times in a year uh-huh. wow. from our restaurant and the customers. Yeah. And, and they shut it all down. I, and I said, that was marketing legendhood to me. It I, is. I, I finally it achieved is. it when they took down a hashtag. And LSD has been com- become a phenomenal success. And then when you add our funky dumplings, it becomes, it becomes a, a unique experience where yeah. we hashtag no place on earth about Brooklyn Chop House where you can get Chinese fused in with an American steakhouse and great dumplings. There's so many lessons here about creativity and innovation and and just zigging when everyone else is zagging that literally captures notoriety in, in a big way and things go viral and people, it captures their imagination, you know? And I'm sure you're a big believer in hooks in your restaurants. You've already mentioned a couple of examples of those. It's like if our goal is to up-level this industry, it's to take all the stories and, and the experiences that you've had and just give people a new idea that they say, wow, I can do something like that. I can innovate. I can do what my competition is not doing because really it's such a competitive industry and you're obviously a really resourceful, creative guy with um, celebrity behind them and notoriety and all these things which help up-level a business and, and help you stay relevant. Absolutely. But for the average operator out there that is running a restaurant, not running a business, running a restaurant, not building a brand, it's like, what advice would you give them to sort of disrupt their own business and, well, their own restaurant and turn it into more of a business and a brand? Because not everybody can do that. And it is so important to the success and the longevity of your operation. Don't you, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I, to answer the first part of your question regarding celebrity, I mean, my restaurant now is in 30 hip hop tracks you know, <laughs> and, and, and it's from Jay-Z to Fabulous to Rick Ross to yeah. Nas. Every, every rapper you could imagine is wrapped about my restaurant. That's and when, when you hit that kind of notoriety, it, it becomes a cultural phenomenon. Yes. But, yes. but my, my, my advice to, hmm. and I've been doing this all COVID long. I, I've actually been teaching four universities entrepreneurship. I do it on my dime because I like to help. Because I like people, and that's why I wrote "Be a Disruptor." I don't. I'm trying to avoid people to make the same mistakes I made, you know. And, and I like speaking to young people, young entrepreneurs, and try to guide them where where it's like me taking my body and going back to the 25 year old Stratus and what I would have done differently. But there's two answers to that. Right now, I'll tell you, I wouldn't have changed a thing because those failures were actually an education for me. But what I tell restaurateurs today, I said, you know what? It's not easy to get celebrities in there. It's taken me 35 years of relationships to have my restaurant full of celebrities. But that's, you know, at the end of the day, I, I treat celebrities the same way I treat my everyday customers. They're all VIPs to me. Um, and, and we don't do favoritism. And everybody gets a bill. I never comp a celebrity. Clinton, Obama, Trump, and Gore, they all pay. You know, they've all paid their bills. And I got to tell you, my, my, little, my little thing is I take their credit card receipts 
and I use it for my scrapbook. <laughs> and that's gonna so one day I'll get yeah, it to that's my cool. grandchildren. Right. And then yeah. you could you could imagine if you could get like uh, Kennedy or Roosevelt on what they ate yeah. and signed credit card. I so I, I've got a whole I got it from Roger Waters to Mick Jagger to David Bowie to Oprah to to all, all the all the presidents and I have it in a scrapbook. One day I'll leave for my grandkids one day. But putting that aside, um that's awesome. I tell you, I tell young, young, thank you. I tell young restaurateurs that, you know, take it, take your social media very serious. Mm -hmm. Don't look at it as an afterthought. I answer every customer that goes on my restaurant's Instagram and inquires about something. Because to me, that's fish in a barrel. When people outsource it to like third world countries to answer their Instagrams or answer their social media, they're not understanding the opportunity. The opportunity is right there in front of them. You've got guests that are circling like sharks, <laughs> circling. They're interested in your product. And you're going to have a third-party guy in uh, India or, yeah, or yeah, in Africa or, or Asia yeah, that's going to answer them. Yeah, no, the only no. person that should be answering it is you mm -hmm. or the manager that walks around the dining room of your yep. restaurant. To that capacity, that person should be answering and be all over social media to answer questions. Because to me... Outsourcing never made any sense to me. Talking about FultonStreet.com, we were featured in Customers.com by Patricia Siebold. That was like the that was like the iconic book of the time, Customers.com, and the author was Patricia Siebold, who was an icon in customer service. FultonStreet.com, with its AOL server and five employees at the time, was featured up with Southwest Airlines, Wells Fargo, and Amazon as the best in customer service in the first generation of the internet. I mean, I mean, she said, and there, and she even said they're working on an AOL server. But when I placed my order, I yeah. got an email from a person. Yeah, yeah, that right. Said, right. It, it went out there. Hi, Mrs. Siebel. Thank you for your order. My name is Stratus. Uh, blah blah blah. On and on and on and on. If you need anything else, here is my cell phone. Now, all of a sudden, because you got to remember the early part of the internet, people were scared about credit cards. But when you see, our goal was to put our hand right through the screen and shake the customer's hand. When you do that, that. especially yeah. early on, yeah, right. Patricia Siebel was blown mm -hmm. away by the customer service. And, and, and that's what I'm telling young restaurateurs today. You may not have the budgets. You've got your asses kicked by these corrupt politicians. And that's another conversation. But you know what? You still have your intellectual property. That's what they can't take away from you. But when you have your restaurant, take social media, especially Instagram and TikTok and Twitter and Facebook very seriously. And make sure someone that is educated in your menu and your customer experience is answering the questions, not some outsourced person, not some intern. Because if that, you're not understanding the business. To understand the business is you need to roll up your sleeves and make sure that every guest... I fall asleep at night, Roger, answering customers. I, I'm answering off my phone or my iPad, and, and I wake up in the morning and sitting in my lap. And, and one day, wow. it's very funny... 3.30 in the morning, someone said, hey, what, what kind of steak is this? And I said, oh, it's a Tomahawk, 32-ounce branded Brooklyn Shop House. And he, and he was like, oh, you know what? This is 3.30 in the morning, and I'm getting an answer. I didn't expect an answer tomorrow. I'm going to tell Stratus how good you are. And I'm like, this is Stratus. And they're like, Blown away. Blown bullshit. away. This is not Stratus at 3.30 in the morning answering me, <laughs> who is. has over 100 restaurants. I said, this is me. I took a picture of me in bed with my pajamas on and I sent it to him. I said, does this prove it's me? That's awesome. He goes, he's like, can, can I just repost this? I go, go ahead. That's <laughs> goes, awesome. I cannot believe you're answering me at 3.30 in the morning. Rock stars. 
You know, paying bills is one time-consuming restaurant detail in a thousand other details. With Plate IQ, your accounts payable is handled accurately and automatically. Plate IQ works with 30,000 restaurants of all types, eliminating manual data entry in your accounts payable process. Technology takes care of line item general ledger coding to invoice payment through Plate IQ's vendor pay network. Now, no more paper checks. Your restaurant can seamlessly flow from invoice upload to payment and even earn cash back from paying over 180,000 vendors in the network on time. Plate IQ is your paperless digital filing cabinet that frees your workspace from invoices, receipts, and statements. You can search anytime by date, item, or vendor. See when everything is due and manage schedules, approvals, payments, and filing right from your mobile. Pay digitally by check, ACH, or your Plate IQ card. Best of all, no money leaves your account until it's received by your vendor, which improves your cash flow and cuts confusion. It's time to check out Plate IQ at plateiq.com. Well, now you're talking about hospitality, touching guests in a personal way, and now using that hospitality or, or hospitality as an extension to your social media, because it translates from the guest experience live in your restaurant, an online review later, just the whole trajectory of the experience is all about hospitality, which, which is pretty remarkable. Let's talk about you opened Brooklyn Chop House right in the middle of the pandemic. What was that like? What happened? So actually, no. So we opened Brooklyn Chop House in 2018. Oh, okay. And we, and we I'm booked about it up to, well, not really. Because we, okay. we, well, we tell us a, the story. We, yeah, we did a big we did a big COVID deal during COVID. Um, okay. So we opened in 2018, and we launched the LSD dumpling concept of mm -hmm. Brooklyn Chop House. When I asked my Chinese chefs, "When you think of Chop House, what do you think of?" They're like chop suey, chop sticks, hack hack pork, chop pork. Chopper is a respected position in the kitchen. Right. I'm like I'm like really. And this was my chef from Philippe Chow. Now he's with me at Brooklyn Chop House. I said Chef Skinny. I'd be called him Skinny. I said. I think lamb chop, pork chop. And he goes, what? No. He's like, no way with a really strong Chinese accent. No. Chop suey, chop sticks. I said, that's it. Two cultures look at the word chop house in two different, completely different meanings. Yes. And that's why right. we fused this all together. So Brooklyn Chop House was a gangbuster success. And then it wasn't. COVID hit us. And we had a you know $9 million a year restaurant. Our highest projections were $5 million. And in March, 2020, I had basically a restaurant doing $10,000 a week in delivery. And at that point, um, my partner, Dave Thomas and Robert Cummings and myself, we sat down and said, what do we do here? Morale is at an all time low, had to lay off 90% of our staff. And I said, you know what? I think we should do something that we could remember and talk to our grandkids about. Let's give it all away. Let's just give it away. Let's give everything we got and let's create like a co-op here and start protecting the healthcare heroes that are keeping us safe and on the lines, because it's a war now. We actually went into a few emergency rooms and it looked like what I would imagine what a war would look like. Yeah, and, right. And, and, not, and not just the doctors and nurses, the janitorial staff, the mm -hmm. maids, they're yeah. cleaning up beds of people that just died from COVID. Right. They, right. They, may, they may bring this home to their families. And I said, we need to do something because no one's doing anything. So we started making gift bags and just handing it anonymously to New York Presbyterian who are right next to us. And then they started posting stuff on Instagram. Thank you, Brooklyn Chop House. One was 20 feet long and 20 staffers were holding a letter. It's like, wow, that's pretty cool. We didn't, we didn't do it for that, but that's really cool. 
So we're sending them lobster dinners, steak dinners. We're sending them wine. We're, Junior's Cheesecake gave us a thousand cheesecakes. We're sending them cheesecakes. And then New York Post said hero of the day, March 27, 2020. They called us hero of the day. And with that, the big companies like Cisco and all the other big companies came to us and said, hey, how can we be a part of this? I said, donate food. Give us as much as you can so we can up this thing. Awesome. Lo and behold, in one month, we upped it to about 19 hospitals. And from March 2020 to July 2020, we served 8,400 healthcare heroes. And we did it all complimentary. At the end of the day, thank God it didn't cost me that much money because I got it from Cisco helped us a lot. Still, what a noble effort. We organized it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously, that's a beautiful thing. That's a great story. Yeah, thank you. And I got to tell you, that's the great story that I'm going to tell my grandkids one day, because Uh to me, that was the most proudest moment of listening. We have hundreds and hundreds of photos of healthcare workers from all different hospitals and one nursing home on Mother's Day and three police departments. And they're just saying, thank you. They're dancing with the bags of Brooklyn Chop House. I mean, the most amazing videos and pictures they posted. It actually built the morale of our team again. Totally. I'm sure it did. Good. Common really cause for the good. for the common good, and that was a yeah. Yeah. Uh, again a yeah. remarkable effort for sure. So, so what happened at that time coincided my capitalism capitalism hat was open too. <laughs> yeah. I, I had it nice and shiny. So every every other week, I would get two to three offers from landlords that just lost the business or lost a restaurant, asking me, "Hey, would you consider brewing Brooklyn Chop House here? Would you consider another brand? Would you consider bringing back your Greek father, your Greek grandfather's Pappas restaurant?" And, and I just kept on saying, no, no, no. And be, be, about, up to about 100 no's, all of a sudden, the Friedland Group offered my, me um, to take 25,000 square feet in Times Square. And I said to David Friedland, that's a little too big for me. And those guarantees and all that other stuff that you guys asked for in Times it's Square. It's a big, huge space. Yeah, not, it's not for little guys like me. He goes, well, we really want Brooklyn Chop House there. Can, can we meet at the shop, at the store? So when I get to the store on 47th and Broadway, I'm like, wow, 50 foot ceilings, five floors, rooftop, uh, you know, a, a million dollar jumbotron, digital jumbotron outside. It was a Buffalo Wild Wings. Oh. And I said, I said, David, I'm going to write down what I need to get this deal done. Yeah. And I expect never to hear from you again. I still consider you my friend, but business is business. I've got to tell you what we can do here. And together with my partner, Robert and David, we just wrote down all these different things. And we wrote, you know, 8% lease where Robert came up and said, hey, cap it at a million dollars, cap that a million dollars. 8% of our sales will be the rent, cap that a million dollars. We want a 25-year yep. lease, which is unheard of in Times Square. We want a COVID clause. A COVID clause means for any socialist governor or mayor in the future that ever decides to shut us down without going to a court of law, um, we revert to 8% straight with no base rent. If they shut us down where business interruption doesn't cover it. Yeah. And so if business interruption doesn't cover it, then we revert to 8%. If there's any shutdown in hours of operation or capacity of any kind, it drops to 8% and there's no cap on it. It's until we get reopened again. That's a business interruption who screwed us the first time around, doesn't pick up the bill. I have that in there. Then it comes to the guarantees. Buffalo Wild Wings guarantee was $7 million. I said, no, our guarantee is going to be a hundred grand. A hundred grand is the only thing I'm going to guarantee on this lease. I need two years rent free and I need a seven figure check to do the cosmetic overhaul to convert this to a Brooklyn chop house. I wrote it on a, on a piece of paper. I handed it to him. I put my jacket on and you got to remember, I, I just got to the square 
um, and it was probably April 2020. And I was the only one in the square at Friday, two o'clock. Only one in there at Times Square. It was it was actually s- spooky. That I it was almost like a bad movie, like that Tom Cruise. Oh, yeah, movie. I can imagine I was that. The only one in the square, and this is New York, March. Uh, no, um, yeah, yeah, probably April, March 2020. A- 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 April, April, yeah. April 2020, around two o'clock on a Friday. <sighs> yeah, and then you know, and then you got to remember, you know. My family's like, are you crazy? We're all hiding out here. Like, we're all like, you know, uh, you know, we were told to stay in our homes and all that. And you're going to go sign 25 years lease. And, you know, my family was very concerned about that idea. But I said, you think New York's going to be like this two years from now? It's never going to happen. Yeah, ground floor opportunity. But you also, uh, there's that scene around. So, so Roger, so lo and behold, make a very long story shorter, is that David Friedland said, what's your lawyer's number? And he didn't even counter offer. He basically accepted my terms if I would sign it today or, or bring it to the lawyers today. Sure, sure. And that's how we got 25,000 square feet Amazing. in Times Square. And we opened exactly two years later with Fat Joe and Mary J. Blige hosting a, an eight song concert. Unbelievable. What I was going to say is you're seeing around corners again. And there's another lesson for our audience about, you know, I've got a term and it's called get yourself bulletproof. And that means you've got to be able to anticipate the future. You got to build cash flow so that you are untouchable, so that nothing can harm you. And the pandemic is a prime example that no one could have predicted. But yet you took a risk at a time when a lot of people were just digging in their heels and saying, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to do now? And it's like, that was the ultimate pivot to take on something that had such tremendous opportunity down the road Mm -hmm. and taking that risk. But then having the wherewithal and the resourcefulness and the creativity to say, okay, I need all these clauses. Like you talked about the pandemic clause and all this kind of stuff that literally protect my downside. If the downside were ever to happen. So huge lesson there. That's thanks for sharing that. And I, and I I go much more in depth in my book and I explain that this is the only deal that's ever been done in our industry Mm -hmm. where if I do $5 million a year, I break even, but my projections are 30 million a year. That's never happened because yeah. when you project 30 million and you, if you do 15, it's usually you're out of business. The deal that I created is that if I do 30 million, I'm making a lot of money. But if I do 5 million, I still pay my bills. That's unheard of. And that's how we designed the lease. And then three months later, I signed another one for 14,000 feet. And now I'm bringing back my grandfather's restaurant that shut down in 1975. I'm bringing back Papa's Taverna in the West Village. Awesome. And I'm doing that with the chef of Milos and Avra. So we're going to do the first wood burning Greek restaurant. Again, nice. I wanted to disrupt the Greek restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to be the traditional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and everything really roots because the old way of Greek cooking was not on a grill. It was in wood burning ovens with a grill inside it. I'm going back to that style of cooking, which is old school Greek. That's never been done before because Americans ha- have a tendency to, you know, to, to, to take a, a great classic model and make it uh, convenient. But old wood-burning cooking is the way Greek cooking was always meant to be and always was. Yeah. And I'm bringing that back with Papa's Taverna. And again, I'm disrupting the whole Greek cuisine, the Greek menu, the Greek restaurants. Restaurant owners and managers, I call this the business of a thousand details. And you've got more important things to worry about than calculating and paying your monthly sales tax on time. Well, that's where Davo comes in. Davo puts sales tax on autopilot for restaurants. Davo uses sales tax data from your point of sale system to set aside the exact amount of sales tax you collect every single day and then files it and pays it when it's due. 
on time for your restaurant every month. Davo takes just five minutes to set up, and once it's up and running, you never have to worry about paying sales tax again. Davo costs $49.99 per POS connection per month, and your restaurant can try Davo for the first 30 days free. Davo was created by a successful restaurant chef and owner who knows what's important for your operation. Time is money, and you've got more important things to focus on, like pleasing your guests. You can't put a price on peace of mind. Why not try Davo for the first 30 days at DavoSalesTax.com? I've had some amazing experiences um, on Mykonos and Santorini with real traditional Greek cuisine. And it is about hospitality and they make you feel like family when you walk in the door and it's simple and it's right from the local farm down the road and the wines and the food, like what a cultural Uh, experience uh, 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 that is, uh, but that's your heritage. Yeah. I'm in Mykonos all the time growing up. I mean, I mean, you'd see a grandma just painting the tiles on on the, on the walkway. Yeah. You know, and, you know, my father always said this and he ingrained this into my head growing up in the restaurant business, a customer pass a hundred doors before they get to yours. And when they finally get to your door, make them feel that much special because you know what? They had a hundred other choices to go to, but they chose you. So you need to reverse that and make them feel like they're the king of the king of the castle, the queen of the hill. And, and, and that's how I was brought up with my mother and father, just literally bending over for any customer that walked in, didn't matter what they looked like, how they were dressed you know, whatever, how old they yeah, were, right, right. They, they treated everybody like they were extended family. And lo and behold, every time I had a birthday party where it was like my big fat Greek birthday party, yeah. I, you know, we'd have the waiters and waitresses and the bus boys all there as guests. Now you can't do that today, but that's how it was back then. My parents had the whole restaurant uh, family, all the employees as an extended family. And that's how we were. Well, there's another key lesson there. And you're, you're speaking from an authentic place in your heart and you're the guy answering, you know, people at three 30 in the morning, but there is a concept that I want my audience to constantly keep aware of. And that is the lifetime value of a customer or a guest. And by treating one person, like you're talking about treating them, even if they're a first time visitor, you're treating them like an old friend that you've known forever. You have no idea how much that one person can impact your business, your restaurant in their own patronage everyone they tell about that particular service and hospitality and every online post they might share. And every single person has that kind of exponential power to drive your restaurant forward, or you never see that person again. There's two parts to that answer. First is before the internet, you'd only hear about a great restaurant at a nail salon, a barber shop, mm-hmm. or the shopping mall or a party Yep. or the, or the workplace. Right. And that one person could probably catch five people that really love your restaurant. Today, it's folded by a thousand times. That one person may just have a couple of hundred followers on Instagram. Like some restaurants say, oh my God, if they don't have 50,000 followers, I, I, I don't really care. I'm like, what? You're, you're getting greedy and you're not appreciating the old days. The old days was if they had five people, it was a home run. For so sure. if they have 50 followers or 100 followers yeah, on Instagram, yeah, yeah. that's a gold mine. It's I a know. potential gold mine. It is. That, that person, you know, every person is a journalist now. They're going to pick up their phone, that take a picture of your food, tag your location to their 50 followers. Are you kidding? That's yeah, huge. It is. Of, cor- of course, we love the yeah. ones with millions of followers. But you know what? The one with 50 is just as important. If you just stay with that philosophy, because if you stay with that philosophy, stay focused and do it month over month, day over day, hour over hour, and the thing blows up. 
because you're constantly putting out a good product and treating a person properly. And as they keep on hitting you on social media, eventually the whole thing blows up to your favor. And Competitive advantage is what that so is. So many times, you know, and another thing I could tell young North Star is put up, a, put up a neon saying. Some of my neon sayings have gotten 16 million views. Some of my neon sayings have gotten 10 million views because they take a picture where it says, you know, spread love. It's the Brooklyn way. You know, I, I have in the ladies room, uh, you know, my, my milkshake brings all the boys to the yard, taking like rap fun quotes in the ladies room. <laughs> awesome. And the ladies are, What's a, yeah. what are they going to do? It's yeah. Brooklyn yeah. Chop House at the bottom. Yeah. Selfie. Hashtag Brooklyn Chop House. Selfie. I mean, little stuff like that is not expensive. Come up with a really cool quote. We had one that said uh, from Andy Wall said, uh, uh, fall in love with your eyes closed. You know, we put that up on the wall. It got it got just from uh, 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 Delavagne, a famous model, and Puffy, uh, P. Diddy. It got like six million views just from them too. It cost me fifteen hundred bucks to put it up on the wall. You know, these priceless. are the things that we do. They're priceless, and you priceless. have to do. You have to gear yourself to the in, you know for the social media, the Instagram, the TikTok generation, because even the the, the classic lamps that we have on our tables now, yeah, they're they're professional lighting underneath for food food production. You know, there's a company that came out and took the traditional beautiful lanterns for your tables and basically put food lighting, like those little round dots that they'll like the food uh, bloggers will use. Enhances actually, the it, plate presentation it, of everything it, delivered to the table. Oh, we do a before and after. So uh -huh. if you take a picture of all yeah. the food on the table yeah. without the light on uh -huh. and then put the light down. Smart. Oh my God. It's Smart. got a glow. It's, it makes your food look 30% better. Fantastic these idea. Things, the, these are the wow. things that restaurateurs should be doing because yep. this is just, you know, we've got to focus on that. They are going to share this with their guests and you got to look your best. Unbelievable. Let's talk about the book. Stratus, you wrote a book and it's called Be a Disruptor Streetwise Lessons for Entrepreneurs from Mobs to Mandates. That's a quite a title. Take us through it. What's What are you covering and what's the crux? Yeah. So, um, like I said, the mob has been in and out of my life about three or four times uh, through my career. Started out when I was a kid, all on a friendly level. Then to the Fulton Fish Market, all on a friendly level. But then it turned nasty on me. In 1993, um, I had a very successful Gotham Diner. And uh, we were doing a lot of alcohol business. We had you know, big DJs and it was, became like a nightclub, like a diner nightclub after 10, 11 o'clock. So come knocking or John Gotti Jr.'s thugs come knocking on my door and they say, we want $5,000 a month. And I said, for what? They said, it's an alcohol tax. I said, an alcohol tax to who? Oh, that, that's to us. We give you protection and you got to pay a piece of your alcohol business to us. And they said, you should be thankful because I know you're doing more than that. And we could probably charge you 10,000 like we charge other places, but we're just going to do 5,000 with you. I said, here's my answer. Go fuck yourself. And that was it. And I was unbelievable. Like, oh. And I said, I'm not afraid of you guys. Whoa. I'm telling you to go fuck yourself and get the fuck out of my restaurant. Yeah, and, and they suck your sleeve somehow. <laughs> you know, no, not, I, I didn't at that point, but I, but it Keep came. Going. And yeah. So um, so what they started doing, they beat up two of my managers Whoa. and, and, and ahead of promotions. They beat them to a pulp to that go to the hospital. Um, and they kept on coming back and they're staring at me at the bar. And you got the message, and I would say, fuck off, get out. You know, and that was it. And then eventually I just, just ignored them. But then they started throwing black paint on all my windows just to show that if they want to break them, they can break them. But the first warning is they're going to throw black paint 
and cover my corner store all full of glass. They're going to cover all the glass with black paint. And they started doing that nightly. So as I'm cleaning it one morning, um, Ralph Coppola, who's the underboss of the Genovese's, is a customer of mine. And I know him, you know, I know through the circles, you know, the Genovese's ran the Fulton Fish Market. You know, all these guys had respect for me and I respected them. And every time they came to my restaurant, they always paid and never looked for anything special. And that was the relationship I had with these very important, you know, mafia types, um, you know, bosses and underbosses and captains and all that. All sure. these guys were like my friends and never asked me for anything except for these thugs. You know, John Gotti crew and his and his cohorts were a bunch of thugs. And um, so Ralph said, what's going on here? And I said, well, I'm trying to be sh- They're trying to shake me down. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, yeah, Gotti's crew has been here. They shake down everybody on the east side of New York. From, from strip clubs to mom and pops to nightclubs, they shake everybody down. Everybody pays a mob tax. I refuse to do so. He said, they're doing that to you? Because this is a place that these guys frequented like five times a week. It was like their second home. Again, always paid. They sat in the back. They had their little dinners and lunches and breakfasts and whatever. Just really nice guys to me. And um, Ralph Coppola says, sit tight. All I heard. Two days later, I got a call from one of his guys and said, "Go to Ferrier Bistro on 65th and Madison, and be there 11 o'clock." I said, "Okay." So I went there 11 o'clock. I had known the restaurant, I know the owner, Alon, and I knew in the back all the Gambino capos had a dinner like four nights a week in the back, and like the heavy duty guys, like like the like really big important people. Gotcha. Because I'd see them there because I, I would frequent Ferrier, mm-hmm. and then. Um, so when I get there, Ralph is there with another soldier of the Genovese named Bucky Carbone, who befriended me years before. And we were actually like on first name basis. And uh, we sit down with these five Gambino capos. And, um, and Ralph says, listen, this guy is around us. And I'm like, I am? <laughs> like, I, I really? News to me. But yeah, I, I just shut my mouth and I li- listen. This guy is around us. You tell Junior to come correct. Because if he, if, if, if he continues to harass him. This thing is going to escalate where the five of you at this table will do nothing about it, can do nothing about it. And I'm like, oh, I didn't realize how big these guys were because the guys they were talking to, I knew how big they were. Of course. These, these guys were like, you know, so the difference was they were wearing their $3,000 suits. My guys had a Yankee bomber jacket and a baseball hat. But, but meanwhile, they're the ones that were the most powerful guys in the whole crime world. So within, within a minute, the cap was like, hey, we know this Greek kid. He's a good kid. We actually go to his place. We'll squash this, Ralphie. Ralphie, we're going to squash this. Don't worry about it. Consider it done. Just tell him, if this continues, where they keep threatening this kid, this thing is going to escalate, and it's going to be a problem. And lo and behold, it was squashed. Fantastic. Just like that. A, and, then, and, and then when I discussed it with heavy my dad. Heavy story there, Stratus. That's a heavy yeah. story. Wow. And when I discussed it with my dad, yeah. I said, um, huh. I said, you know, dad, and this is what happened. He's like, you know, be careful. You may have exchanged one devil for another. And I said, I, I don't know about that. But I, I don't think so. And lo and behold, I was right. They never asked me for anything. They kept on coming to the restaurant. They didn't even ask me to comp them anything for their, for their service. They kept on paying their bills. But fast forward to June 94, I opened up my first nightclub. So with knowing those guys, I met their attorney, Patty Stisso. And Patty Stisso was a general counsel, a legitimate lawyer. Um, and Patty, um, I needed to raise like 500000 to take over this old nightclub on 54th and Park Avenue and convert it into a nightclub because that was my dream. As a kid growing up in Garden City, I wanted to own a nightclub in Manhattan. 
So Patty put up the 500 grand and basically we were in business together. I knew in the back of my mind that that 500 grand uh, was coming from, you know, coming from the Genovese guys. Mm -hmm. I knew it because yep. right away I could see that they were involved in the construction. Right. I could see that they were involved in it. And you know what? At that point, I was like, whatever. I, I know on record and uh, with the state liquor authority, I'm partners with the, with a legitimate person where he disclosed where he got his money. And, and I saw the checks coming in and how he got to that point. It's none of my business. Uh, that's not my business. And later he got in trouble with the law for, for laundering money. And he actually did prison time, but that's years, years later. Um, but putting that aside, I knew that these guys were basically behind it. And I was kind of okay with it, Roger, because I knew if they're going to shake me down at Gotham Diner, which is you know 2,500 square feet, what are they going to do with 8,000 square feet on Park Avenue? So oh, yeah. I knew at the end of the day, having yeah. Patty as my partner and having the guys behind me, I was never going to be shaken down. Well, what happened was after the restaurant, after the club opened, a Jewish gangster came to me from L.A. And he was like that. He was like the head guy in, in Los Angeles. He was like the Bugsy Siegel of the time. OK. And sure. he came to me and he sat down with me and he said, listen, you know, uh, I want to be a partner here. I said, I don't need another partner. And he goes, well, you don't understand. You have no choice. I said, we're, we're from LA, but we want to be in the nightclub business in New York City. And we figured you'd be a perfect guy that we want to partner with. And I said, I don't have any interest. And he goes, well, let me put it to you this way. And he writes down on a napkin, 10K, on a cloth napkin, which pissed me off because this napkin costs like 10 cents. And he's writing on a cloth napkin with his pen, which was such bad manners. That first thing that really bothered me was- Yeah, that, that was a disrespect right there. Yeah, yeah. 10,000. He writes $10,000 yep. and he takes out a gun. He pulls out a bullet. Puts the bullet on the table and the 10 grand. He says, pick one. I said, really? We're going to go there? And I'm saying inside my head, this guy didn't get the memo. That he's really in dangerous territories if he thinks he's going to shake down the most powerful people in the world that are behind my attorney partner. But lo and behold, I said, listen, yeah, I'm going to discuss it with my partner and I'll get back to you. I called Patty. I said, this is going on. Minutes, I get a call from Ralph to meet me at Cafe Tabak and let's discuss it. So I knew you know, I, I wasn't stupid that I knew that I had that protection being partners with Patty. Right, right. Um, the legitimate oh, really? lawyer um, who, I, who I adore. And um, so what happened at that point is Rob says, what happened? I told him what happened. He started laughing. He was with two other soldiers. I said, why are you laughing? This is pretty serious. It's like, he called me nephew at the time. He says, nephew, I got it. Yeah, tell I got the guy, back. Tell the guy I want to see him at 11 o'clock Friday night and we'll discuss the opportunity. I was like, I was like, fuck that. Yeah, he showed me a bullet. You guys want to discuss the opportunity? But anyway, I walk in the club at 11 o'clock that night. There they are having champagne, having a great old time. Ralph and the Jewish gangster having a great old time. Champagne, this and that. And, um, and I'm, like, I'm like, wow, I guess they don't really care about somebody threatening my life. But literally around 4.30 in the morning when this guy is all juiced up and drunk, um, I heard Ralph, uh, it was in the VIP room and there was nobody left in the room. And I went up to him and said, how are you guys doing? And he goes, nephew, we're doing well. Thank you. He eyed me to get out, like leave. Literally, I heard Ralph said, here's my counter offer to the offer that you made my nephew. He picks up a 60 pound candelabra that you needed like three or four hands to pick up. Yeah. Ralph is so strong. He picks it up uh -huh. with one hand yeah. and he hits him right over the head. Oh, amazing. And, yeah. and yeah. as this happens, as this happens, you know, the other guys, you know, the other soldier guys escort me out because they I'm a civilian. They don't want me to see such a thing. 
So I left in a taxi. They locked the door. I don't know what happened. It was a, it was a fight going on. They got me out of the out of the club before I could see what happened. But I know the guy really got hurt hard. Yeah. And the only thing the only thing I saw, like I write in my book, is the next day the only thing that I saw different was that the big area twenty foot carpet was gone, and that was it. And I don't know what, if it was because it was stained, yes. or whatever. More than likely. I, 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 I don't know what happened to him, yeah. but all I know is that these were the stories pre-Giuliani, New York City, and hospitality. You had to decide, Roger, what side of the fence you were going to be on. If you were going to say, you know what, I'm on the side of the fence where I'm just going to cut these guys' checks every month. I know. Or you're going to sit back yep. and fight it. Take and a have stand. Those guys, and, and have at least have some of those guys in your back pocket if needed, just out of friendship. Because yes. they were there just Amazing. for friendship. They may have made yeah. an investment through Patty Stisso. I'll never know. Oh. Yeah. And, and Rouge made a lot of money. But these are the kind of stories that we dealt with pre-Giuliani in New York City. That's really amazing. You've shared so much with us. We talked about hospitality. We talked about innovation. We talked about relevance and staying ahead of the curve, creative ideas that really build your business and your book, um, Be a Disruptor by Stratus Morfogan. Stratus, you've been a great guest on the podcast. I can't thank you enough for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Thanks to our audience for tuning in. I wish you all to stay well. We'll see you again in the next episode. Thank you, Stratus. What an amazing conversation. You are truly a restaurateur's restaurateur. So many great stories, so much great learnings. Um, you've seen it all, and uh, there's so much ahead for you. So we wish you the best of success, and thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Thanks also to this week's sponsors, Plate I. IQ, Pop Menu, Devo, and Serve, the restaurant training app at srvnow.com. Hope you all stay well. Can't wait to see you next time. Stay tuned. People go to restaurants for lots of reasons. What the customer doesn't know is the thousands of details it takes to run a great restaurant. This is a high-risk, high-fail business. It's a treacherous road, and smart operators need a professional guide. I'm Roger. I've started many highly successful, high-profit restaurants. I'm passionate about helping other owners and managers not just succeed, but knock it out of the park. You don't just want to run a restaurant. You want to dominate your competition and create a lasting legacy. Join the Academy, and I'll show you how it's done. Thanks for listening to, to the, the Restaurant, Restaurant Rockstars, Rockstars Podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.